nothing, nothing, uh, nothing can bring out innovation in the scientific community like a good old fucking war. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Right. I saw AK-47. <laughs> well, <laughs> this guy didn't even a, have a college degree, and they were just like, build, build some shit, bro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was on the low end of the scale. We're yeah. not even talking about gas exactly. that'll liquefy your lungs, you know? Exactly. Like, he just basically created a fucking, uh, uh, like a big nail gun, yeah, you yeah. know, by yeah, comparison. Awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's very, very true. But yeah, I was telling Marsh, I'm like, I'm embarrassed, because now, like, I'm realizing, like, oh, fuck, like, I'm going to be excited for Oppenheimer. I'm going to yeah. be, like, stoked and ready to catch all the guys, you know? <laughs> But yeah. I guess that's just how it, how it goes sometimes. Our know. favorite armchair physicist, Christopher Nolan. favorite Tory. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Ryan Saunders, and with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. So for those who might be tuning in for the first time, The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts have to program a pair of films in response to that theme. Sometimes we get a little bit creative, we have some conceptual themes, but you know, this week it was my turn and I decided I'm just going to have it be a little bit straightforward, um, and I was going to limit us to just looking at a specific era in Hollywood that I've always really enjoyed and, and found fascinating and to be quite honest, feel like in my own movie watching habits, I have sort of neglected. I think I've seen less films from the pre-code Hollywood era than I should have, because every time I watch one, I love it, and I have a really good time, and I find them fascinating glimpses into the past. Um, so that was the theme this week, was pre-code Hollywood. This was specifically, I was tasking my two compatriots here to, to bring films that were either a little risque or were dealing with topics that you just traditionally wouldn't really seen depicted as bluntly um, in Hollywood films after 1934, specifically until 1968. I mean, I don't know how much I'll get into like any of the history of this stuff. I assume some of our listeners probably know a lot about it. And I mean, Marsh and Andy teach history of cinema and probably have like a much better prepared lecture of sorts on what the pre-code era of Hollywood is than a guy like me does who just really enjoys it. But I mean, yeah, for those who maybe don't know what the pre-code of Hollywood is, this is something we can talk about later, but it's essentially before there was a code, you know, it was like the wild west of Hollywood where there were some some people that were coming in and saying, you know, what should and shouldn't be depicted on screen, but it wasn't that strictly enforced until things sort of came to a boil. It seemed like Hollywood was becoming a cesspool with people like Fatty Arbuckle getting killed and all sorts of sex and violence. Uh, he didn't get killed. Yeah. No, of course. Uh, he Excuse killed me. some poor woman. <laughs> right, of course. He <laughs> killed that poor woman. <laughs> right, right, right. Excuse me. Yes, of course. We don't have to get into that. (laughs) We do not need to get into that. That has been well documented. 
um, on podcasts as well. But, you know, so it, it reached a tipping point in the early 30s when the production code showed up. And that's when there was a strict set of rules of what could not be depicted on screen. And it does really feel like it was it was really ramping up leading to that moment that the films from 1931 to three and a little bit from early 1934 were films that were, you know, coming hot out of the gate and trying to be provocative, trying to deal with real social issues in a straightforward manner without um, putting it behind a smokescreen of sorts. And the films we have today perfectly answer that prompt. I'm very pleased. I had a great time watching them. Uh, One of them was exceptionally moving, really, really touched my heart. The other one, scratch that itch of finding something you know naughty provocative very very sassy yeah i'm i'm a happy camper here this week um as we were we're code breakers you know but so i was gonna say you know earlier of the two films who could go first but both of these films are from 1933 and just before we started marsh you had mentioned that they came out like a day apart from each other so i will just i'll do alphabetical order andy your film starts with a letter uh that takes place before marsh's film so you could go first all right um i guess i've been in a a a bit of a, a a rut i i just can't seem to get the idea of vanity projects out of my head. It, <laughs> it, it, it would seem, you know, savvy gauntler listeners have, have probably followed some of my other periods. You know, I had my com block period where I was just bringing all these <laughs> Soviet era pictures. And then I went through my Italian phase and now I'm in my vanity era, you know, like this is, this is where I, this is where I'm at. No, I I should say this isn't, you know, as far into the idea of the vanity project that we had recently explored in that the central figure, you know, certainly didn't handle uh, most of the aspects of, of filmmaking. Uh, It is without a doubt the, uh, the, the the focus is very clearly on one singular figure in this particular movie. Um, and so, you know, knowing what Marsh had picked, um, I really, really had a hard time kind of going anywhere but but here, and, and I felt it would balance things out. Sort of both of those sides of the spectrum that I think you laid out in your introduction. So for me... Uh, I had to go with with one of my heroes, and that would be the one and only Mae West and her film from 1933, I'm No Angel, directed by Wesley Ruggles. And see, that's the thing. Even though, you know, Mae West didn't direct her own films, a lot of people have talked about how she basically directed her movies. I mean, she was, at the time of this film's release, uh, one of, if not the biggest uh, box office star in Hollywood. Um, I think it would peak for her in 1935, where she would be the highest paid star in Hollywood, the, the highest paid woman in the United States of America, and the second highest paid individual in the country. I Let's mean, go. she wow. was the queen 
of the silver screen and certainly the pre-code silver screen. Uh, that's, that's very important, I think, in where she would go and what would happen to her, her films, and a lot of other people's films once the, the production code set in. So I went pre-code Mae West, even though she had a long, long career. Uh, they, her films after the, the production code came in didn't quite have the same bite, the same uh, venom to them. And uh, for those who haven't seen I'm No Angel, Mae West stars as Tyra, the incomparable Tyra, who is a sort of burlesque circus performer for Big Bill's Circus. And uh, basically, like a lot of her other movies, the, the, the sort of like loose plot built entirely around her double entendres, her quips, her, her one-liners, uh, is that she's a, a, a woman, you know, of, the, of the, the, the lower classes. You know, she's a woman of the street. She is a, she's a, she's a salt-of-the-earth gal who is using her talents and her uh, libido to get whatever she wants, get uh, her own sense of, of, of value and fame and fortune and lots of diamonds, lots of jewelry, and sort of climb the, the social ladder however she can. In the, the, the film, there's this sort of loose drama that involves her, I guess, ex-boyfriend, the guy by the name of Slick Wiley, who uh, busts in on her when she is with one of these suitors, one of these, you know, men who are willing to, to lavish jewels on her for a little bit of her company. And in this sort of uh, shakedown gone wrong, Slick ends up basically busting a bottle over this guy's head, uh, this poor guy who's known in the credits as simply the chump. And at that moment, uh, both Tyra and Slick are horrified to think that this man's dead, a murder has just been committed, and this sort of then uh, creates this whole scenario where Tyra knows she has to distance herself from Slick. Slick gets arrested, and she's worried she's gonna get dragged down with him. So in order to like extract herself from the situation, she has to call upon her lawyer. But in order to get the funds to hire her lawyer, uh, Big Bill, the, the, the circus owner, her boss, says, well, if I'm going to do something for you, you have to do something for me. And that thing is for her to stick her head in a lion's mouth in the circus. And of course, once she does that, she becomes like the biggest circus performer in the country, leaving the sticks, winding up in New York City in a beautiful penthouse, the biggest star in, in, uh, in the, the Big Apple. And along the way, there's a lot of men who sort of come and go, but eventually she will settle on one, one particular man who is, of course, Cary Grant, who joins her for the second and last time following the success of their previous picture, She Done Him wrong uh and and really you know like that's 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 more or less the the plot uh because again as i mentioned you know may west movies are really just about one thing may west the plots are always second fiddle to that 
one and only screen presence. So really, more than anything, this is 90 minutes of just basking in the glory of May West. Um, yeah, I think it's a fun film. I think it's an interesting film. And, and again, I think that um, it, it represents a, a lot of what the rabid... Um, sex paranoid freaks like Joseph Breen and the the members of the the production code administration were were terrified which is of course strong women and uh liberal attitudes towards sex so uh, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun uh picking this one apart so that's uh the film I brought I'm no angel with Mae West it's funny that you call it a vanity project because it does sort of blur the lines between a vanity project and the actor as auteur project. Oh yeah. You know, where it feels like her presence as the performer in it. And then also having her hands in the story and dialogue, right? It feels like she's the true auteur of the production, but yeah, I, I actually, this is the first time I've seen a Mae West film. You gotta be shitting me. No, isn't that crazy? Oh my God. It's funny. Like I'm very familiar with her and like scenes and, you know, know her shtick, yeah. but I had like never actually sat and watched a full Mae West picture before. And I gotta say, Mark Proch's impression on On Cinema, come up and see me sometime, boys. It's <laughs> very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not even a bad impression. Yeah. And it sounds a lot like his W.C. Fields, but that, <laughs> yeah. that I guess tracks because they did famously once share the screen they together. They certainly did. To your point, though, about that, of being sort of familiar with her and, and never seen one of her movies, I, I think that's a pretty common thing. And I, um, I, I think especially in this day and age, there's, there's a lot of people who are very familiar with Mae West and, and sort of understand mm -hmm. her her persona and her presence and, and what she's known for, but, but haven't actually, like, seen her films. I, I think it, it speaks again to that, that star power that she had, that she has just this one of a kind um, sort of, she cuts a one of a kind figure in the history of cinema and, and still to this day is sort of recognized perhaps without being fully known. But yeah, no, it was, it was a, a welcome exposure. As much as it's also just, you know, about basking in her presence, it's really also about just watching her saunter across a room. You oh, know? <laughs> the strut. The, the strut. The, what a strut. Well, Marsh, the film you selected invoked uh, some radically different feelings in me as a, as a viewer. So tell us a little bit about what you picked. Sure thing. You know, I was... Uh... I mean, well, this film came to my mind immediately, but then I was, you know, further exploring, uh, you know, in my mind, like what pre-code uh, cinema meant to me. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it, of course. Uh, and I was, I was going all the way back to uh, the first matinee I ever went to at the Music Box was part of a pre-code series and a real life friend of the pod tony Corriale, you know was just like hey, come see this pre-code movie and i'm like what, what okay what's that you know <laughs> uh and i saw night nurse 
by William Wellman starring Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, and from that moment on, I was sort of like always enchanted uh, by pre-code movies. And uh, because of Night Nurse and because of many other movies I think of, William Wellman and the very productive run uh, of movies he made at Warner Brothers in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And, uh, you know, I brought Wellman to the pod before, you will recall, mm -hmm. uh, for our uh, Top Gun episode. And while we had a lot of fun with Thunderbirds, uh, we all walked away knowing... Uh, it wasn't Wild Bill's best effort uh, as a filmmaker. And so I thought this would also be, uh, you know, a good time to, to bring forward what I think is is just one of the great Hollywood movies and, and one of his best films, of course. And that is The Wild Boys of the Road, also from 1933. Uh, and this is a, uh, like, 70-minute uh, depression shredder, you know, like that's how that's the only way I can describe it. Uh, and it is, yes, as Ryan alluded to, uh, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to pre-code movies, right? One dealing with like the extremely harsh, uh, backdrop of the era in the great depression. And so while, yeah, it doesn't have, uh, you know, uh, the sort of comedy stylings of, of Mae West and other uh, sultry, sexy comedies, you know, by Lubitsch or whatever. Uh, it has uh, road realism, you know, and it is ultimately a story about uh, a group or trio, really, and then a much larger group of teenage kids who hit the road in the Great Depression and make their way riding the rails, moving from town to town, looking for work. Uh, and, you know, we'll get into the plot details, but it's really as simple as that. It's a, a film of pure trajectory. You know, it starts, of course, in their small town, and then as the Depression hits, it sort of forces their families into even harder times, and uh, the kids seek relief for their parents and an escape for themselves, and it is a very harrowing, brutal, and kind of fucked up movie, which of course is why I love it. And, you know, I remember the first time I, I saw it, my eyes were, were like, popping out of my skull. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And even at that, some of the film was censored, of course, even in this era before the code, there were still some things they had to uh, cut out of the film uh, due to various pressures. The film stars Frankie Darrow, who we previously saw in No Greater Glory by Frank Borzaghi from 1934, playing the street tough opposite of the main characters in that movie. Um, so that was nice to see him again. You know, he never grew beyond 5'3 and kind of had a really actually tragic life and career, but uh, he's very spirited here uh, as Eddie uh, and his friend friend Tommy, played by Edwin Phillips. They're sort of the original group. And then on the train, as they're traveling, they meet Sally, uh, who is uh, a young teenage girl who they, you know, sort of form this trio together. An interesting note, 
Sally was played by Dorothy Coonan, a.k.a. Dottie Coonan, who would soon become Dottie Wellman and was married to Wild Bill until he died in 1975. So uh, interesting about that, Ryan, I know you just saw Gold Diggers of 1933 for the first time. Mm -hmm. Dorothy Wellman was uh, a dancer in that film, and that's actually where they met. Uh, they were on, like, stages opposite each other, and Wellman was friends with with Berkeley, and, you know, he saw her one day and, and fell in love at first sight and, and barged in on the Gold Diggers set and was like, I need to meet her, you know? And that's sort of, like, when they started dating. Wow. And it was just And it was just prior to... Wild Boys of the Road. And she was a dancer, not an actress, and didn't really have aspirations to be an actress, but he was like, only you can play this part. And so she was like, all right, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and I think she gives a terrific performance in this film, and she basically acted in like nothing for the rest of her life. Um, so there you go. Uh, that's the Wild Boys of the Road. We'll get into it. I had this uncanny feeling that I had just seen her and as you said that, I Googled it and I saw the photo of her from Gold Diggers. And I'm like, yep, that's who I thought it was. And there's actually another interesting overlap with Gold Diggers of 33. Oh, yeah. With this film. Actually, a couple. Several. Because the film the film starts at the, the sophomore frolic. And a lot of the tracks from Gold Diggers of 33 are like what's playing at the sophomore frolic. Yeah, and Eddie calls it trash. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But most importantly of all is that, uh, you know, you mentioned Eddie is riding the rails with Tommy and Sally. Eddie is also riding the rails with Winnie the Pooh. I don't know if uh, you knew that. The, uh, the actor Sterling Holloway, who plays a bellboy in Gold Diggers of 33, Molly and I, like, he made us laugh so fucking hard in Gold Diggers, and we were like, who is that guy? Because his voice was so unique. He was doing crazy things with it. And then he is, he turned out he is the guy who voices Winnie the Pooh, primarily a voice actor after the 30s, um, and even during the 30s. He did a lot of cartoons. But he's the guy in Wild Boys of the Road that they meet on the road, and he gets tricked when one of those ruffians is like, hey, you got to make sure you show a letter if you give me a nickel, I'll give you a letter from my dad yeah, that you can yeah. use. He's the guy who takes the milk bath. Yeah, the scrawny guy. Yeah. Absolutely. That's Winnie the Pooh. It's kind of fun. Of course. <laughs> he looks like a cartoon. He does, yeah. So it's, it's good to have Winnie in the mix, too. Um, it's like a nice little bit of lightness in an otherwise pretty bleak movie. <laughs> well, where are you bound to? To my father in Chicago. I've got a letter. Boy. And for you. Well, but thank you. Thanks for, for laying it out. Thank you both. It was an interesting double feature because I think it does showcase even outside of the preoccupations and its provocations that you wouldn't find necessarily in a Hollywood film from the late 30s and well into the 40s and 50s. It also is a good example of the different type of formalism you would find in the early 1930s, you know, because Wild Boys of the Road is extremely expressive. And I was really struck by that. 
It's lean and mean. It's 68 minutes and it's propulsive, but it's also full of really striking photography. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about that guy standing on top of the train with the giant plume of smoke behind him, the black smoke, this man lording over the train right before he's about to pummel our our trio uh, with a bunch of rocks. And then I'm No Angel has that kind of stiff romantic comedy, if you want to even call this movie a romantic comedy, <laughs> look to it, you know? It's more the camera is just kind of moving back and forth so we can watch Mae West saunter and strut, you know? But it's it's much more straightforward in the way it looks. It really occurred to me, you know, watching I'm No Angel how well i guess i'll start with the fact that yeah i'm no angel is a paramount picture and and wild boys of the road is a warner picture right and you know in those days the studios had their distinct personalities and paramount was sort of like the elegant studio they had all the european directors they had the best lighting they, they were had, the you urban know. sophisticate studio yeah exactly and it really struck me this time like how some of the shots of Mae West are like the same shots that are in like Sternberg movies of Diedrich, right? Uh, And, you know, thinking of that, like it really is like this high key lighting, like glamour effect on her at all times, her sparkling dresses. and Well, and there's, there's, I think even a little bit more to the particular presences of both Dietrich and Mae West, because, you know, both of them, like, contractually had their own, like, lighting design written into the films that they made. There I mean, you go. Dietrich particularly had <laughs> her own personal, like, lighting uh, assistant whose job was to, regardless of whatever else was going on with the photography, specifically manage how she was lit in close-ups, in the glamour shots. And Mae West is someone that also was, you know, again, more or less um, dictating how she would be captured, you know, what she was going to wear, how she would be positioned, basically her blocking yeah. as well. Oh, you yeah. Know? I mean, she's from the stage as well, so she knows how to, like, move around a space, you know, and, like, make it dynamic. But, yeah, and then on the other hand, of course, Warner, uh, known for being cheap, uh, and as a result, making, yeah, a lot of gangster films where guys sit around and talk in accents, and then a lot of social problem films. I mean, they were, uh, you know, for better or worse, uh, committed liberals, as we'll talk about uh, the sort of ending of, of Wild Boys of the Road. But, uh, you know, this was the kind of thing that Warner Brothers was was making at this time. And in fact, the same year, 1933, Wellman made Heroes for Sale, which is this incredible film about like what happens to a soldier after World War One, all the way up until he's a hobo in the Depression. And it's another incredible depression film and it and it's so sad and, and brutal and so like that's the kind of thing they were doing and both films are yeah like testaments to i think sort of like the best qualities uh, yeah. of these studios yeah i'm no angel fits very well into a certain like category of comedy film that was very popular in classical hollywood and especially you know or i should say like particularly these days uh which is is like the the comedian comedy. So you know it is again a film built entirely around one person's shtick, you know. And 
actually the the director Wesley Ruggles uh, before he became just a sort of like studio hack started as an actor and actually uh, acted in many films during his early days with Charles Chaplin. Mm. And so I think he's very well versed in that idea of, hey, this movie's about this person's talents, right? And and Chaplin would be the first one to tell you, like, just put the camera here and I'll do my thing, you know? We're not going to rely on crazy camera tricks. I'm going to interact with the milieu. That's going to be what people in the audience are, are, are going to be you know, transfixed by. So, so again, I, I think it's telling that Mae West uh, never worked with a director more than once <laughs> because I think... Like Kinski. You know? Yeah, like Kinski <laughs> or, or Val Kilmer, I think, that was another person that also had that, you know. But, but you know, she would basically come in and, and take over the production and she would she would more or less take over a lot of the creative decisions that you know a director was 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 normally tasked with with making uh again whether it's the the lighting or or just simply you know when to cut uh or or where to put the camera and and i think it would be very hard for any director to argue with her especially at this time i mean you mentioned like the studios a lot of the studios, you know, it wasn't just Paramount. I mean, so many of them were, during this pre-code era were, were bankrupt oh, yeah. or on the verge of going bankrupt. The conversion uh, to, to sound is only like, you know, it's still in its infancy. And that conversion was so expensive, so Paramount unbelievably. Paramount the most theaters, so they were Fox. Dude, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, that's, again, something that people lose sight of in that, wow, I can't believe it was so expensive because they had to convert their studios. And then, yes, every single goddamn theater because they also owned those. So they were broke. And Mae West was one of the only people at this point who was dragging Paramount out of their, their, their basically like just being totally in the red. So, so in addition to her just being a strong presence, she also has that box office gold surrounding her, which gives them even more power, gave her even more say in, in what could happen. So yeah, I mean, directed by Wesley Ruggles is really in quotation marks because this is, this is, you know, yes, a Paramount picture starring Mae West in every way. You know, it's funny you bring that up because similarly what I learned about Wellman's relationship to Wild Boys of the Road was that it was similarly Warner Brothers uh, trying to keep him there. He was looking to leave because it was sort of a transition period, like Zanuck was leaving and all these people were leaving and Wellman like hated Jack Warner. Uh, and so they were like, ah, but... Before you go, how about a little Wild Boys of the Road? Be because uh, Wellman and Wellman and John Houston had been independently bidding for the rights to the story when First National bought it, and so they knew that, like for Wellman, it was a passion project because he, we all know, had a wild, crazy, young, you know, life uh, before he even joined, uh, you know, the the French Air Force in World War One. So, like, he saw this film as a 
personal film, and he uh, he went like sort of over budget and over schedule uncharacteristically because he like loved the material too much. I mean, it shows. And the studio was basically like hands off, except for of course the ending. We'll talk about, um, but he was you know dictating everything with without a lot of oversight at this point because they they knew he was you know a reliable director they wanted in their stable you know that that doesn't surprise me i felt like when i was watching both of these movies i could envision what being on both of the sets might have actually felt like because i was surprised at how much of wild boys of the road felt like it had this handmade quality i could see his wellman's care in almost like every frame and seemingly every interaction with the performers just because of the way everyone spoke with each other all the stuff that remains unsaid even in a 68 minute movie all the stuff that's between the lines of so many of these encounters and how sensitive it is it felt like something that you know again primarily sets but there was still some location stuff it looked like yeah it had this independent spirit that i don't necessarily feel like i have often felt when watching an early 30s studio picture and then in the case of i'm no angel i mean everything you say totally tracks andy i feel like i could see ruggles just getting beat up constantly with Mae West's wit. I feel like she probably just eviscerated that guy whenever she needed to to get her way uh, and had like earned it as such. I mean, because she her dialogue is so sharp in this movie and the way that she just confidently struts around and takes charge of every situation. I could feel her creative control over every moment. It really was mm-hmm. an actress as auteur throughout. She was someone who got shit done even at a time when it sounded like Paramount was struggling to, to get shit done. Come on, Tyler. You're going to be a good girl and work them lines tonight, ain't you? No, I'm going to be a bad girl and go home to bed. Oh, no. I'm tired from tossing the hips. I know, but... Besides, the cat acts on too late anyway. I'll wake up tomorrow night if you put them on earlier. Sometime you'll ask me to do you a favor and I'll... So what? Yeah. I mean, she has to be, for me, one of the most indomitable spirits in the history of, like, classical Hollywood. Like, how could anyone go toe-to-toe with her? She's absolutely fucking bulletproof. And it's it's not just that she was, you know, successful or, or good at what she did. It's also in the sort of inescapable... Uh, overwhelming confidence. Like, this is someone who is so sure of themselves in everything that they do in all of their their moments. I mean, and it's why I've always loved her because this is as ridiculous as it is. And again, as, as clearly, you know, almost like can't be kind of like this, this quality of like can't be narcissism that she's always displaying as, as vain as she is. And yes, like this is a person who would insist on lighting herself a certain way and would only be done up. Like that's the only way you could ever see her. You know, an important point is in, in so many of her movies, even when she's in, you know, lounging in her boudoir or her bedroom. I mean, she is always, to the nines, you know? She's not just wearing a simple dressing gown. She's still dripping with jewels and her hair is perfect and she's got a cape on and she's got heels. You know, it, it really reminded me of, of my, my friend Vince. I mean, you guys both know Vince and, and Vince was able to work for, for Prince right before Prince died and was actually in Minnesota at, you know, the Purple Palace. And that's one of the things he told me about 
about Prince. He was like, Prince would never leave his room until... I mean, he was done up. He was like, Prince. You would never see him in jeans and a T-shirt. You know, it's the same kind of mentality that it's like they had to maintain that persona that sort of kept people almost at a distance, right? That that it's like you were in the presence of royalty. In this case, you were in the presence of a star. It, she's she's amazing. And I, I would just even say, because again, you sort of brought up like that Marsh and I both teach history. And the thing that I'm always really trying to stress to my students, you know, is that we live in this era where, you know, anytime a, a, a woman gets a lead role in some big Hollywood blockbuster, everyone starts like throwing a goddamn parade and talking about how finally we have strong women in the movies. You know, finally Hollywood got their act together. And it's like you you have no concept because in the 1930s and particularly this pre-code era the biggest box office draws in hollywood were the the female stars and they were in so many pictures about you know strong women women in in business women in positions of leadership women who are sexually dominant i mean this was a a huge point during this like pre-code era where where, you know, the idea of the, quote, strong female protagonist was, was I think, more on display, perhaps, than, than, than even today in, in Hollywood. I mean, again, the idea of a woman, a, 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 a woman being the highest paid star in Hollywood, that stuff doesn't happen today, you know? I mean, like, that was a, a very special progressive period. And again, why guys like Joseph Breen would come crashing down down on that side of things you know i think marsh's film represents the sort of the other side that they wanted to come crashing down on which was sort of the 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 leftist side of 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 the 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 ideology the politics anything that could be in any way shape or form sympathetic to to socialism mm -hmm. or communism or anything like that you know the poor workers of the world but yes on the opposite end of the spectrum it was it was it was women you know they were terrified of strong women who had ownership over every aspect of their life yeah that was something i think about or that's just something i generally think about anytime i return to a pre-code film as of late because it does feel like watching a pre-code Hollywood film reveals how inherently misogynistic the production code was and what that did oh, yeah. to the way that women were depicted on screen. Because there's just this frankness with their sexuality. There is this approach to marriage and infidelity that becomes totally warped and different in, in later films that were, you know, heavily controlled by the production code. It does feel as though women and woman friendships were something that were depicted in a much more liberal and relaxed manner in the pre-code era because they weren't, you know, tiptoeing over how proper everything needed to be and how much it had to adhere to the conventional conservative standards of like how a woman should live her life and behave um, because otherwise it would be seen mm -hmm. as seditious or something, you know, like to the structure of the American myth. And I mean, obviously I'm no angel is really intensely opposed to <laughs> what the code would eventually stand for, you know, because the amount of provocative one-liners that Mae West is spitting out left and right throughout the whole film are, I mean, it's enough to 
get you going today. It's like, oh my God, like listen to all this stuff, you know? Like, by the way, honey, you married a single. Married five times. Five times? <laughs> Wedding bells must sound like an alarm clock to you. Oh, I don't suppose you believe in marriage, do you? Only as a last resort. <laughs> uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, uh, sort of a politician. Well, I don't like work either. Oh, oh, oh. oh uh, you know, I like to get around and travel, and believe me, I've been places and seen things. Mm-hmm. I've been things and seen places. That sort of evens us up, huh? <laughs> Ooh. Sit down. It's also ludicrous, too, because her, her like, hip wiggle, you know, I'm sure it was much more risque in vaudeville. It's it's very tame in the movie. You know, she does this little shimmy. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, like, driving the men in the audience insane and also yeah. the men in real life insane. And it's like, this is 30 years before Elvis, <laughs> right? People were shitting their fucking, you know, <laughs> shitting their pants because Elvis was like tweaking his hips, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, this is 1933, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the confidence you mentioned, Andy, I was thinking about this as well. This time, too, I think like in the early sound era, there's also like, you know, that freedom that comes with like a new period of, of technology and discovery. Like, this was only her third film. Mm -hmm. She'd been on stage for 20 years, but. It's only her third film. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, the confidence she has as a screen actress is enough to, to be impressed and go, like, she actually doesn't really know how to make a movie, but that's also why it works. Right. Because, like, it's like the plot, like, the plot just takes a backseat the whole time. And, like, it's just another excuse to, like, get him into situations or, you know, get her in a courtroom for a little humor, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. a little uh, high class, low class situation, you know, whatever. It's just for fun. Yeah. Uh, the plot, there is no plot. Like, it's really just like a gangster film. She just goes like rags to riches, mm -hmm. you know, and then has to deal with. Uh, everything around that you know and i i do want to sort of you know focus in on that that walk we've 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 <laughs> described and and we've talked about a little because i think that marsh you are really on to something there because you know she does like you know some historians say that in in classic hollywood the two most recognizable walks were Mae West's and John Wayne's, right? That they had a very uh, yeah. particular and very, like, imitable, like, gait that you could, you know, ascribe to them and, and their persona and their presence alone. But what I think is interesting for me is that, you know, if you take those two, you know, the Duke and Mae West and their walk... I would say the more masculine, the more macho, the more intimidating hers stroll far, is hers. Yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, people talk about her walking. I think sometimes, you know, be like, oh, and she walked and it was sexy. No, for me, it's always been that she is prowling and she's squared up and her 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 upper body is is like she's ready to throw a fucking punch yeah. at the drop of a hat if she doesn't like what you have to say that when she walks in a room she commands everyone's presence she cocks every fucking guy in the room because i mean she would kick your ass uh, in a heartbeat and and so for me that's i think what is again for these like you know these these paranoid 
repressed Catholic psychos who were terrified of women who, who managed the production code. For them, I almost feel subconsciously there's this thing about Mae West, particularly in her walk, that it's like, who does she think she is yeah. pushing all these men around? She's just some floozy. That it wasn't even the sex, that it was more She's acting the masculinity. Like a man. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Um, that they were intimidated by. And you know, it tracks too, because her father was a boxer. That's right. And I think she learned a lot of that about about stance and about you know presence from and from her uh, dad. John L. Sullivan, uh, you know, as played by Ward Bond, uh, who we get a little special cameo from this episode. <laughs> yes, but we'll oh, save yeah. that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean that's it. That's it, Andy. She uh, and that's also the thing about her her sort of like you know her her free wheeling attitude towards sex. That's her shtick. She's acting like any man does right you know um and and that's it exposing that hypocrisy right mm-hmm. yeah i mean i watched um in prep i watched babyface the barbara stanwick film oh yeah oh yeah. remarkable <laughs> yeah. movie really really great and the brief appearance of john wayne who himself looks like he has a baby face in it because he's very very young in it when i when you see john wayne in babyface and then you see may west strutting in I'm No Angel, I just couldn't help but think like, yeah, Mae West could kick that guy's ass. I know he was a football player, yeah. but like well. Mae West seems to have this like unbelievable physical prowess that I could see her taking him down easy. Yeah, not not much of a football player, I'll be honest yeah. with you. Now, now here's the question that you know I think everyone at this point has on their minds: Could Mae West defeat an army? Of vagabond children. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess it would depend on whether or not they'd gone through puberty yet. You know, I don't know. They have a lot of they have a lot of spirit. They have like so much commitment to their ideals uh, and so much honor. I'm not trying to suggest that Mae West's character doesn't have honor in this film because she does have her own code. But like, I was so struck watching Wild Boys of the Road at. Uh, just like how good, uh, what good boys they were, you know, <laughs> like when we, when we get to meet Eddie and Tommy at the beginning of the movie, it was funny because I didn't read about what the film was when I popped it. Like when you had picked it and popped it and I was like, Oh great. I can't wait to watch this. It sounds good. I remembered you recommending it, but had forgotten the plot details and, you know, we start the film and we're at the, at the, you know, the sophomore frolic. And I'm like, oh, these wild boys, watch, they're going to, they're going to get up to no good. And they don't really. And then later on, they keep doing these just like, like gas pump girls too. Did you there guys is, yeah, we can, we can right? touch yeah. on that. But like they, I was struck then because they do all these noble things for their parents. And then I looked at Molly and I was like, oh wait, I'm such an idiot. Like they're not wild boys yet. These are good boys who become wild boys. I like didn't real. I thought it was about street toughs. I didn't realize it was going to be this like riding the rails and then like living that wild life. So it was just funny, like having the rug pulled from under me when I, you know, it is such a tender beginning with the families and it is like, it's great watching them at the, at the sophomore frolic. It, the, they sneak in uh, one of them because the idea of the frolic, right, is that it costs 75 cents for, for boys to attend the frolic, but girls get in for free. And I think it's a Tommy at the beginning that dresses as a woman yeah. so he can sneak in. Yeah. And, you know, I like how Eddie and Tommy, they really stand up when all the other chubs at the sophomore frolic are like no we're not going to dance with harriet who looks like a totally lovely girl i would have liked to have danced with harriet yeah. I, well i i think 
you know, since we're on the sort of subject, I guess, of like the openings, something that I found in reflection very interesting about both films and obviously the time in which they were produced and released the realities of of that America, which is that, you know, both of these films establish a world, a space, a milieu. They establish America as a, like, unbelievably brutal, capitalistic, like, shithole, each in their own way. Like, the way people like immediately in both of these films have their lives like monetized and measured by, by money and wealth and the idea of like simply even like having to pay to have a good time. Like both of these films do that, you know, and I'm no angel. It's, it's the circus and the circus barkers and, you know, trying to separate people from their dollars through entertainment, but also they're, they're, Picking everybody's pockets in the crowd, literally, you know? and, yeah. and and she, uh, you know, when she comes out and dazzles all the 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 sort of like mouth breathing men who who want to you know oogle her, you know, after she finishes her first performance, right as she's exiting the stage in a very throw throwaway Mae West way, she simply says suckers. <laughs> Right. And like she gets it, you know, like, yeah, everybody's a sucker in America. And like you said, the sophomore frolic, it's 75 cents for boys. Right. And and one of these guys doesn't have 75 cents. And it's like, man, that's fucking painful. And then on top of all that, like, you know, when they get into the dance, yeah, guys don't want to dance with Harriet. And then they get ratted out for sneaking their friend in. And no, nah, the guy can't just hang. They're going to kick his ass out. They're throwing them out like there's no ah, all right well you're already in here like you might as well have a good time like no in america a good time costs money even in these trying times and that's why you know you raise your fist in the air and you give them a fist bump when they do start siphoning gas from from someone else's car after they had their own gas stolen presumably that's like what they think yeah. is that's happened. what I mean it's like fucking post apocalyptic <laughs> yeah. in that movie I swear to God it's like it's like Mad Max right. shit you know right it's so funny how I always forget that in like the 30s you could just lift up a car you know when they like pick up that car and shift it over so they could get it closer <laughs> yeah. to theirs to siphon the gas out well. Probably depends on the car too. Sure. I mean, you know, back then all cars were made of steel. You know, <laughs> right. like jeez, Louise. <laughs> Uh, you know, Ryan, you said that, uh, you know, you, you didn't look up the plots. So you felt like, you know, the rug had, had been pulled out from under you. And I was thinking when you said that, like, that's, you know, how everyone felt after the Great Depression, you Just, know, and, sure. and the crash. And especially like, I think it's important too, like the context of this film also being like a story that was written in uh, the deep Hoover years. Like the film, of course, was ultimately released, you know, in the early days of FDR, the very early days of the New Deal. But like there was no welfare, there was no unemployment, yeah. there was no banks weren't FDIC insured. Right. Like if you lost your job, like you literally had nothing, yeah. literally nothing yeah. to do, right? There's no there's no social safety net yeah. for anyone. Not a single thing, right? And that's like crucial, I think, to that like rug pulling because these kids are lower middle class, middle class, right? And mm -hmm. so like 
the shock is even much bigger to them. Like, they don't even know what they're getting into when they hit the road. I mean, they're going to hit real hard times, right? Uh, And I love how when Eddie comes home at the beginning, uh, he takes a huge cake. It's a pie. Oh, it's pie. pie. He takes a huge pie and just cuts himself like a gigantic slice. And it's like... This is the last good fucking like bite to eat you're ever gonna have, oh, buddy. Yeah, you know, I, I, like I didn't even know like the plot, but when I saw him like, you know, putting that big old hunk of pie on his plate, and then they just sort of like while he was doing that, they cut to to the to his parents, like basically like looking at a bunch of papers in front of them. I was like, oh boy. Like, and I'm sure again, like for audiences in 1933, that's exactly what they would think. Like it's, it is a pointed, it is a pointed moment. It's not just like, look at this rascally kid. It's also like, boy, he has no idea about this world. He has no idea about tough times. And, and the audiences certainly do in this theater, you know, and that's the, the naivete visually right there depicted in that, that, that like, three quarters of the pie that he throws onto his plate and then strolls into his parents' den and says, what's up, mom and pop? You know, like... <laughs> oh, shucks. Yeah. The mom's already weeping. And that's know? why I was so struck, though, at how immediately he does feel the weight of the situation. When he notices that his parents were crying and he hears the news that his father is out of a job, his instinct isn't that everything's going to be okay, that things will get solved right away. Like, he's immediately selfless. He's like, Gee, it's too bad Mom had to order me that new suit yesterday. No, I'm sorry, dear. I'm afraid we'll have to cancel that tomorrow. Oh, I don't know. I, I guess we can stand the suit. No, sir. Nothing doing. I didn't like it, did I, Ma? Remember? I said I didn't want a gray one because it looked too much like my brown one. Remember? And it's like, Eddie's like a stand-up guy, straight out the gate. He goes and sells his car. You know, the guy only wants to give him 15 bucks. He's able to haggle it up to 22, you know? Yep. Again, these cars that you could, like, lift up with one arm, you know? And he's like, he's still, he's like, just a little bit to take home to his father. And I mean, man, oh, man, we've had a few, like, good examples of, like, fathers and sons having a tender moment with each other um i think about how bad of a movie quicksilver was but how like good that scene was with with the dad (laughs) i loved in in wild boys of the road when he tells his father that he sold the car and when he sees the glimmer of recognition in his father's eyes eddie himself is about to tear up and his instinct then is to just go come on put up your dukes and hide away from those feelings and those tears like let's let's have a little let's have a little spar punch each other a little bit for fun and his father you know plays along but then just gives him a hug yeah his father's like fighting back his own tears dude that is all i could think about was just like cry macho shit you know like (laughs) they still gotta be men you know and they both just want to start bawling in each other's arms and then yeah they like cut it off really quickly he's just like flees the kitchen like see see you later pop you know and he's just gonna go outside and they're both gonna like burst into tears you know but they still gotta be men oh god it's it that that's just some william wellman shit too that's just some like tough guy stuff right there you know i mean a a lot of this movie is just about downplaying uh hardship like honestly Mm -hmm. because these kids you know they're always like it's all good you know but like it's never all good you know and that's like a 
that's the vibe, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, again, on the flip side, I think with, like, Mae West, I, I think, again, like, she was always, she was very popular. You know, she was such a popular star. And, again, even though she's, like, she's dripping in luxury, she's doing everything she can to, like, to live comfortably, I think, again, the, the fact that she comes from the working class, you know, mm-hmm. that oh, yeah. she is this figure. I mean, we see the work she puts into, you know, having the things that she has. Yeah. Like, those things don't come easy or for free. No, you know? and she's going to get hers in America. And and again, I think audiences would look at, again, both of these things and, and connect to them, you know, in the same way that, like, you know, John Dillinger or Bonnie and Clyde were like celebrities for for so many people in America. It's this idea, like you said, of, well, the government's fucked us over. Wall Street's fucked us over. No one cares about us at all. So fuck it. Like, get yours any way you can. And and especially if you are someone that is self-made, that is, you know, just a, a street kid from Brooklyn like Mae West, like, people go Hell yeah. Like, I'm into that. Fuck, fuck yeah. And I mean, there's even a, an unspoken sort of like question at the heart of I'm No Angel too, like whether or not she's like actually a sex worker. It doesn't actually, you know, really like dive into that. But she's like seeing these these sort of like wealthy clients like after hours, you know, she does her circus performance and then she entertains like a, a rich man or two, you know, one night stand, et cetera, is sort of implied. Um, but it's also like, yeah, like what, you know, like what's actually going on here i think they're like the vagaries are on purpose you know but well i I mean again she is she's i think what is refreshing and what is appreciated is that she uh she never hides oh no and there's like no moralizing at all right i mean it's 1933 like we're gonna fucking moralize about this like look at the crooks in New York, <laughs> the crooks and watch You know, everyone's like, everyone's a goddamn crook. And I think that Mae West's very blunt, very direct approach is, again, like what so many people could appreciate in that sense. I mean, like she says to uh, one of the girls that's, you know, sort of like, you know, adores her that she works with at the circus, like as she's like leaving at a certain point, Mae West turns to her and, you know, it's almost like, what's your secret? Tyra, how can I ever thank you? Don't. Well, you look better already. <laughs> I say, you're a good-looking dame. Well, there's a lot of guys that go for you in a big way. Oh. But always remember, honey, a good motto is take all you can get and give as little as possible. You know, and it's like, yeah, an audience <laughs> in 1933 is going to howl at that and yeah. be like, absolutely. And as it relates to that, I think of her mantra of, as she just refers to men in general, find them, fool them, forget them. You know, because (laughs) when you're watching I'm No Angel, you it wouldn't be too hard to forget that, you know, that that this is a man's world. Right. It seems like it's Mae West's world in the way that she's like totally dismantling and going after all these rich guys. There's still ways that it peers through the cracks. It almost feels like her gesture of just like stomping all over men throughout the film is her asserting her dominance like as a screen presence and as a figure in this film whether that is she's whether she's a con artist uh stealing money from people along with slick or whether she is a sex worker again i i also found it to be like a little bit vague but the find them fool them and forget them you know like that's how she soldiers on and like lives her own independent life 
and all the men are disgusting. In yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the men that she's interacting with are scumbags. I mean, the the guy who, again, is credited in the, the, the screenplay that she wrote as simply the chump <laughs> yeah. uh, is, this, is this guy who's like married, right? Oh, He's yeah. just sort of throwing himself at her, who has arranged this, this one-on-one meeting with Tyra after the show. And, and like... You know, even when she's like sort of asking him about himself, like, well, who are you anyway? Like, what do you do? And he's sort of being vague about it. He's he's keeping secrets from her. And and at a certain point, all he offers is, well, I'm I'm sort of a politician. You know? <laughs> and then her her line right after that is, oh, yeah, I don't like to work either. Right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> You're a piece of shit. You're sort of a politician. Look at the America that that you have helped build then. Fuck you, you know? And then there's that great bit so where she's funny. asking him where he's from. And, and he's, I'm from Dallas. And she goes over to her record player and, and she's rifling through all these records that just have the, the different cities. But they're all the same title. You know, no one loves me like that San Francisco man. No one loves me like that Chicago man. And then she finally gets to the Dallas man and puts it on, you know. And he, of course, he's beaming. That's right, baby. No one does it. You know. I was yeah, wondering, so she, the, the, the implication there is that she recorded all of those records, right? That she like yeah. went yeah that is like so funny to me thinking about her like visiting a studio <laughs> yeah. or like a homemade yeah. type place like you could record your own track on vinyl and take it home with you and she's like oh yeah. great like just goes through the city like Mar- like Mar- <laughs> said it's work dude she's putting in fucking work <laughs> yeah. here I mean, Lots this of is not lazy there. at all. <laughs> No one loves me like that Dallas man. Yeah, I mean, you know, funny little connection, I guess, too, to the films in that sense is, you know, when the when the trio of kids get to uh, Chicago, God forbid, you know, and it's sort of like there's like people all penned up. I was like, oh, no, Chicago, <laughs> yeah, Chicago, Chicago representation, you know, but uh, Sally's basically like, oh, I have an aunt in, in Chicago. Uh, we're going to go visit her. And she gets, you know, Tommy and Eddie to go with her and they meet the aunt and she's just running a brothel mm-hmm. and the kids just sort of like walk through you know very quickly like this shot that looks like it's from I'm No Angel you know basically and then they're like out the back window because the place gets raided (laughs) like immediately the cops open fire off screen you know and they're like (laughs) out the back window I'm like that's Chicago you know damn it Um, they got us in like five minutes yeah I was Mm -hmm. trying to imagine what neighborhood that could have been with like such a swanky apartment (laughs) like that it's funny in my memory even i literally just watched the movie last night like now that aunt appears in my memory as may west like welcoming the wild boys into yeah. into i'm no angel and then dispersing with them very she very quickly yeah she is yeah she has like the exact same haircut that mm-hmm. like you know that like pixie blonde curly kind of hair right <laughs> yeah i was laughing though about that when they did go to chicago and 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 yeah just they're just ri- ripping all these, yeah, these the kids. police states waiting for them oh yeah. yeah i mean that's the thing like throughout the film and again another like reality of that time which is that yeah you just had to have like 
armies of fucking like cops and Pinkertons and railroad dicks as they're called in this film. Like just basically at every like railroad junction to just yank people off of those things. And like that scene is, 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 is really like, it's brutal in its, in its, uh, again, like bleak depiction of the realities facing not just life for these people, but, but again, like life for these cities where it's like, they feel like they're almost are, are literally like having to defend Chicago because the guy says like, Hey, there ain't enough jobs for men in the city. We don't need all these kids running around here looking for jobs as well. Like, I mean, and it's it's horrible. It's a horrible situation for everybody involved. And I think it's actually, you know, again, you, you sort of pointed this out, and and I think this is this is what really ultimately will help them throughout their journey, which is that they are very good boys, and that is something that that kind of like aids them on their journey as well. Because in that like Chicago moment, you know, they're dealing with all these like street toughs all these other kids who are riding the rails and they're all given like wise cracks to this like railroad dick or whatever, you know? And he's just like, throw him in the pen. He keeps throwing all these kids right. in the pen. And then when he gets to them and he's like, what are you doing? They're like, Oh, we're yes, sir. We're, we're going with her. Yes, sir. And they keep saying like, yes, sir. To him. And he's kind of like, all right, you guys are good boys. Like you guys, <laughs> all right, on your way. You know, and it's like, it's as simple as yeah. that. It's just the fact that they say like, yes, sir. No, sir. Thank you, sir. That like prevents them from getting thrown in the goddamn like Chicago concentration camp or whatever. You know? <laughs> I kept thinking about how like Eddie, d- did he also give you both like Jean-Pierre Lyot energy? <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah, I mean, especially like in some of the goofy situations, like when they do have to flee the aunt's apartment when there is that raid by the Chicago PD and he's like leaping back into the window to take the chocolate cake. Oh, yeah. Kind of a funny echo of the the pie incident at the beginning of the film. Like he didn't get his bite of this like big, massive, beautiful chocolate cake that the aunt (laughs) was like willingly dishing out. She's like, oh, great kids. Like love to have kids in the place. Um, But I kept thinking about like, yeah, his innocence. Like he had that face of a young Leode. I was like, this is the the OG right here. Eddie, a good boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, we're making it sound sort of like fun in games. But, uh, (laughs) you know, the film does take an even more dramatic turn as, uh, you know, they they continue riding the rails and they then meet, you know, even more violence uh, at the hands of these railroad bulls and, and other and other sort of authority figures. And there is the epic sort of like uh railroad warfare scene uh, as I was sort of like referring to it in my mind you know this just incredible incredible sequence where they're they're kicked off the train all these kids like a hundred hundred plus kids are kicked off the train and they're all just standing there yeah and then this guy dude this guy this guy <laughs> I love this guy <laughs> This guy is just sort of like, you know, like some sort of farmer, like local, sort of like worker. Yeah, or just some like or just drunk some bum. Yeah, yeah. Like just some drunk yeah. bum. You know, it's like this guy comes out of nowhere and he's like, Hey, what'd you let him put you off for? Let him. They threw us off. We couldn't help it. Those are railroad dicks. Oh, there's only seven or eight of them. There must be close to our world, a hundred of you here. It's a matter, ain't you got no nerve? What do you mean? We ought to fight him? Well, you got an army, ain't you? Hey, he's right. We got him outnumbered, 20 to 1. Hey, how many of you guys want to fight? Come on! on. 
dude. Can you dig it, dude? <laughs> Honestly, that shit, that shit to me is like when the movie just pops off and goes insane because then like all of these children uh, just do like an assault on these railroad yeah. cops. They go warriors, dude. Like, yeah, they take it. They take the train. And they're fucking throwing shit at them. They're hitting them with sticks. I mean, it's like a, a full-on assault. Um, now, in the midst of all this, there is some, some even more extreme darkness as a railroad brakeman uh, sort of yeah. catches one of the teenage girls. Like As Ward Bond enters the frame. That's right, yeah. yeah. An uncredited Ward Bond Oh, enters wow. as uh, the yeah he's not in the credits uh, okay um, he just comes in and off screen you know rapes this teenage girl and later when all the wild boys find out uh, they all get together and uh, beat Ward Bond to death well they throw him off the train but like that whole stretch from them attacking the cops to like the beat down of Ward Bond I mean this is like the most violent, chaotic, crazy shit ever put like in a movie at mm-hmm. this point. Like, yeah. I don't even know what to say about it. Yeah, like, it's crazy. I mean, and it's like the fact that there's like this lightheartedness to part of the raid. I mean, because they're throwing eggs at so many of them. So we have a lot of great shot of like eggs smashing on people's faces. We have an egg hit the lens, which I thought was a really nice touch, seeing all the yolk like drizzle down the frame. Yep. Before Buñuel did it. And then it's like at the same time, there is the as direct of a suggestion of sexual assault as you'll see in a movie from the era. Like there's there's almost nothing hidden there. Um, it's It's totally clear. What has just occurred? It's so plain and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 again, man, I, I love that sequence too because in my mind, it just honestly kept going back to the guy, and I, I just kept thinking that, like, on a certain level, uh, you know, it wasn't even out of like, uh, you know, um, um, solidarity to the the downtrodden that it was like just some guy sitting there being like, man, this will be really entertaining. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I'm going to spin these guys up, like sitting there, like drinking his beer, his noon beer or whatever, you know, like out of work. And he's like, man, this is, I can't afford the pictures. This is the best show I'm going to get, you know, for fucking ever. Right. (laughs) I might as well get the most out of it. But again, you know, like it is also, uh, uh, you know, if you're talking about sort of like depictions of like, um, of, I think like leftist rage, uh, during this era and during the depression, I think it's it's one of the starker um, sequences I've seen in 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 any film from from this time. And again, a, a, another thing that that explicitly the production code would come crashing down upon. Mm-hmm. You know, in their list, their their massive list of of don'ts and be carefuls. I mean, they have a whole huge section that is specifically about like sympathy for criminals, right? And 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 that kind of behavior. And it's like in this moment, our sympathies are entirely with the quote wild boys right they are of course doing something illegal but for us we are 100 like yeah fuck up those railroad dicks you know like stop 
stomp war bonds face in. We are rooting for them, and we are not in any way morally conflicted by what takes place. And and again, when they're they're not just like fighting these guys, they're also like raiding the train and 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 yes, throwing eggs, but also like stuffing their faces any opportunity they have. To, to get their, you know, to, to, to get some bread or, or whatever is being stored in these trains taken away from poor people and only brought to those who can afford it or pay for it. You know, this abundance that, that suddenly they're all just grabbing and taking and, and taking ownership of. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, one thing that I was really struck by in I'm No Angel in thinking about so many of the successes and things I was so convinced by in Wild Boys of the Road was um I I was I, I found Cary Grant's presence in I'm No Angel to be very perplexing and funny. Um it, I don't know if it was because he's such a late addition in the film, he arrives like 49 yeah. minutes into the into the movie. <laughs> um but it's also like I think he's a great actor and at no point was I ever convinced that he was like actually madly in love with Mae West. She was like so oh, intense no. that I it felt like Cary Grant, I don't know like what he like thought he was doing. He was thinking about Randolph Scott. That's that's all I could see. Yeah, when I was watching it, this was like one of the most like explicit examples of like he's thinking about Randy. You know? Yeah. Well, also he uh, did not really like Mae West mm. very much because. Uh, you know, the lore that that Mae West spun, you know, in her own constant mythologizing was that she discovered Cary Grant. Oh, boy. That Cary Grant was just some like, just some bumbling guy walking down the street. And she was like, I spotted him, you know, and I said, who is that man? Get him in the pictures. And he took all the credit. And, and in reality, he'd already been acting. He had been in in big films uh, you know, he was still young, he was still up and coming, mm-hmm. but like he was establishing himself on his own merits as an actor. And she, for decades, like took ownership of that, took that, and, and it drove him insane because everybody printed the legend, you know? And for him, like, not only yes, is he just like, man, I wasn't even like attracted to her but like yeah you know uh it's the fact that she was sort of like basically like i made carrie she done him wrong she done him wrong well she is no angel stolen valor but again this was the this was the last time that they would be paired together and i i think to an extent ryan it shows that that he is is in all those scenes i mean uh, has a shit-eating grin on his face when he has to sit there next to her and, and listen to her chortle through one of her, you know, double entendre songs and, and act like he's so into it. I mean, he is, yeah, he is basically like looking at his watch throughout this, this fucking totally. movie. Honey, I wonder if you realize just how much you mean to me. I've never been so happy in my life. You mean that? <laughs> well, I guess love is a wonderful thing. I've had it highly praised. No one could be half as nice as I know.
love must be mine, oh baby, baby. That's exactly what's going on. <laughs> have you seen Have you seen the other one, Andy? Does it feel like that in their other collaboration from the same year? Well, I mean, no. He's he's also a much bigger presence in the other film. Mm, like, okay. in she done him wrong. I mean, he's basically in the whole film, and and so I think you know, again, like these people are all they're they're they're. At this time, everyone's like fighting to become a star. Sure. You know, you're 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 doing whatever you can to like claw your way out of like brutal contracts that the studios would keep you in. And so I'm sure for her, for him, he's like, hey, she done him wrong. Like, I've actually got a good part, you know? I'm doing something. Like he's a part of again, the loose plot. He's actually contributing to it. And here he is literally just her arm candy that that shows up at the end to simply be this this guy that is her her big prize right. at, at at the very end. And and so yeah, I'm sure he was bored. I'm sure he's like I mean, most of his scenes are literally just him sitting there reacting to her, just just looking at her, having to act like, yeah, oh my God, this is a, this is a goddess uh, among among women, and and yeah, he's just kind of like, get me the fuck out of here. You know? <laughs> Although in, in that in that sense, then it sort of works when uh, you know through some some bizarre plot machinations, like they end up in court uh, where. Uh, he's he's dumped her. Yeah, he's dumped her, and she's like suing him for or, breach of promise. Yeah, for yeah. breach of promise because <laughs> yeah. they were supposed to get married. But yeah, he is sort of like just disinterested in the whole affair, yeah. even in the courtroom, especially. He doesn't give testimony. Like everybody takes part in that trial. The hilarious part about the trial is like he's on trial, but of course she's on trial. So really, the trial is about her mm -hmm. so uh yes uh i guess to back it up a little bit right when when she's arrived in new york and she's continuing her social climbing she meets this this wealthy man who's engaged a man named kirk lawrence oh, and this poor guy kirk. yeah poor kirk he's he's gone to a few of her shows already he's a big fan and and again he's already engaged like he he goes to one of her shows with his fucking fiance like the most prudish snobby new york socialite she could ever imagine and and he's lying to his fiance about you know how much he's into her but then is is quickly trying to get in may west's silk panties and and it's actually Cary Grant then, who's his, I guess, cousin. Yeah. Jack Clayton is his name. Michael Clayton. Because <laughs> he's just like, dude, she's taking you for a ride, man. Like, she is just no good. Like, this this woman is is bad news. So he's trying to encourage Kirk to, like, to get away from her. But then he, of course, like, falls head over heels in love with her. But then, yes... Everyone is concerned because she's she's going to retire from the circus to be with the very wealthy Jack Clayton. So they kind of they they set her up. Yeah, slick, slick shows back up and just hangs around in a bathrobe to look like he's still you know banging Tyra on the side. So then Jack is like, "I'm done. I'm out." And she sues him for breach of promise because he said he would marry her. And then this trial begins, yes. And so even though he's on trial, they drag in all of her past men and all of her past relationships, and they essentially try to litigate 
her reputation, her reputation as a, quote, loose woman. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a great moment for so many of the themes that we've been discussing and what she represented, which was, again, this idea of being like, why am I on trial here? Why is, why is my sexuality scandalous? And, and it's a great opportunity for her to basically just get that kind of philosophy out to people. You know, it's her sort of soapbox moment to Truly. really say, hey, this is a very hypocritical society we live in, right? These men get rewarded for this kind of behavior and I'm being punished. And you're also acquainted, aren't you, with Mr. Kirk Lawrence? Yes, I had the pleasure. And uh, no doubt you recall those five gentlemen seated in the first row right inside the railing. Mr. Blake, Mr. Larson, Mr. Willard, Mr. Foster, and Mr. Harris. Well, uh, I do recall their faces, but uh, them ain't the names they gave me. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me again, Judge. It's all right. <laughs> you know, and she does woo the judge. Uh, one of the all-time great gags is <laughs> the judge just loving her. <laughs> like it, that her. is so funny to me. And I it didn't occur to me, but I saw someone on Letterboxd connect it to my cousin Vinny. And I think like there's a direct line from this courtroom scene to my cousin Vinny, right? In this woman sort of like overtaking this courtroom yeah. and the judge is just like drooling over her it's so funny mm -hmm. great performance by that guy yeah it's so funny because she basically pulls borderline to tim heidecker in the trial where she doesn't represent <laughs> herself but she does cross-examine everyone yeah so it's just her oh, like yeah. sauntering past the jury doing a little show you know giving a few winks and then just ripping apart everybody that takes the stand and just like putting her foot mm -hmm. down and revealing the hypocrisies making total fools of all these chumps and then just like sitting back down and the judge with his polka dot tie has this giant grin on his face he's like this is a it's a hell of a show like i wish i had caught her at the circus you know yeah i mean like don't get me wrong the the defendants definitely i think had had grounds for an appeal after uh the verdict <laughs> if it if, if it was going to go that way for for some kind of mistrial i i think but but it's also funny too because if you connect it again even to just may west i mean like i said these movies are just about may west it doesn't even matter what her character name is uh she does to her attorney exactly what she did to director Wesley Ruggles, you know, she basically is like, yeah, I know you're the actual attorney or the director, but, but I'm just going to kind of do my thing here. Is that all right with you? I'm just going to, you take a seat here. Right. I, I got it from here, you know? Well, and it's metatextual too, because she had, you know, like charges filed against her many times mm -hmm. for indecency and in, in her shows getting raided, her theatrical shows getting raided and things like that. So, uh, she'd been in a courtroom before, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in real life. Oh, yes. Uh, defending her persona basically so this is also her yeah just riffing on her real life exactly you know, as this provocateur yeah i mean she always said controversy's been very good to me i mean and it it, it certainly shows yeah yeah I think the hardest I laughed during the whole movie was when she was walking past the jury. Yes. And just kind of like casually looks at him and says, 
how am I doing? <laughs> like, I would have clapped. I would have been like, oh, you're doing very well. Dude, she's out of this world. Yeah, just the strut by the jury is like the most power move. Because also, too, it doesn't even get settled by the jury. Just like Cary Grant just gives up yeah. uh, at a certain point and like settles or whatever. Oh, man. Yeah, and I love, too, when, when she's like flirting with the judge at a certain point. Like, uh, uh, she the, the Cary Grant's attorney, of course, is like, objection at a certain point point like this is outrageous you know and the judge overrules the objection sides with her and she turns to the judge and she says thanks judge you're regular i love that dude <laughs> and then and then i think she follows that up with i'm doing my best to be legitimate oh man <laughs> she's the fucking bomb dude. yeah you know who else was doing their best to be legitimate the wild boys of the road. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they were... really were out there looking for work. Oh, and, man, they were. You know, I want to. I want to bring. I want to bring up well a couple things. Uh, number one, uh, at a certain point when they go to Columbus, uh, they they meet a very chaotic sort of you know railroad dicks situation, and and poor Tommy uh, runs into a railroad sign on accident, and it like knocks him onto the tracks, and he. Uh, gets his leg run over by a freight train. Um, and what follows is a very, like, sort of poetic doctor scene where just the, you know, they just get this doctor. And, you know, this is also, like, part of the movie's strategy is to, like, humanize a lot of random people along the way, you know, because it's a populist mm-hmm. film. So it's like, yeah, we'll listen to the bum who told us to fight the cops. And we'll also listen to this kind doctor yeah. uh, who's going to come and do like unofficial surgery on Tommy because they can't get him to the hospital. Uh, and they're also basically, yeah, like wanted criminals, I guess, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, they did commit a murder uh, I, not I too love long too before when they that. Show up, when, they, when they show up to the fucking doctor's house, you know, in the middle of the night, and they're just like, you got to help us. And uh, they explain, you know, our friend, he, uh, you know, this train, I think he got hit by this train. And, and he says, his leg looks kind of funny. Like, that's his... <laughs> <laughs> you got to help us, you know? And I'm thinking, like, in my mind, it was like, he still has a leg? Like, he got fucking run over by a train. I'm like, yeah. of course it looks kind of funny. Because the last image we see is, like, most of his leg <laughs> hanging over the edge of the rail. Oh. And, like, the only thing we can assume, like, when he says it looks kind of funny is that the leg is essentially off and held together by just, like, a few <laughs> veins, you know, just dangling on the end of his body. <laughs> Oh, oh my God, dude! Poor, poor boys, man. Yeah, and it's you know that that scene is is very moving. Where you know again, it's like Tommy pretending. You know the guy's fucking legs falling off, and he's like, "You're not scared, are you, Tommy?" No. What's there to be scared of? Nothing. Only I thought that. Huh? Take it easy, son. Only I thought that. Well, you know. Fella sometimes gets kind of nervous. Shucks. What do I care about an old leg? Uh, and you know they get they get that I guess fixed up as best they can, which is in an amputation. And uh, what follows is uh, you know the wild boys of the road on the march montage, where we see like a map and all the various locations that they're riding to, uh, and then comes what I think is the best newspaper headline uh, in the history of motion pictures and that's uh, 
Sewer Pipe City becomes Boys Republic. Busy community of waifs functions under own leaders. <laughs> yeah, dude. I wrote that shit down. Too. Like, and and that we move into, yeah, even like the even more sort of communist or leftist kind of uh, utopia as they have gotten permission to stay in this train yard. They've gotten permission by the owner and they have created uh, the Wild Boys HQ. And there is a full on like. Uh, to each everyone's abilities, you know, and needs sort of situation going on where like everyone's contributing, they're doing laundry, they're sewing, even Tommy's getting involved, you know, like they're just living that. Sewer that, Pipe City's thriving. Yeah, Sewer Pipe City is next level, next level shit. But of course, it can't last. No. And, you know, I mean, even today, I mean, especially today, I mean, like the, the vitriol against homeless people, vagabonds, I mean, is, is reaching in, in insane levels. And it was the same back then. I mean, it's like they get run out of this place, uh, you know, by like the riot squad, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's just b- a bunch of teenagers doing laundry. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Dude, I, I kept thinking of no greater glory yeah. because I was just like, man, they need to they need to shore up the defenses here yeah. a little bit. You know, it'd be a little while before I guess he learned all that. It's yeah, I mean they they do put up a fight at first. They're like throwing rocks at the cops when they come, but they cannot uh, overcome the fire hose. Oh no! And even there, there's a little bit there, you know, too, like totally hedging. Like uh, the cop, the cops with the fire hose are like. Uh, this, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we doing this? And then they just like hose down all the kids. But like, there is that note of like these guys even being like, what are we doing? Yeah. You know? And then look at it now. I mean, and I think that's, that's in general, what Wellman is like most, um, I, I guess like the most like humanistic aspect of this film is that even in this, uh, incredibly like, um, you know, horrible America of, of 1933 that he's showing us. Like he also has sympathy for, for, I don't want to say everybody, but most people in the sense that, Hey, everyone's got a goddamn job. And it's like in an, in an America where jobs are so difficult to come by, like these poor guys, like that's it. If they don't grab the hoses and do this job, they're out of work. They're out of work, and they're they're begging for a spot in Sewer Pipe City, you know? I mean, like, he, he has the care to show us that even in these moments that are incredibly, like, cruel, uh, it isn't because of some sort of, like, inherent cruelty, cruelty in the people who are doing these things, right? It's that this is the, the awful system that all of us find ourselves in and you know again like the optimism that i think you alluded to in the fact that this is a a, a sort of early fdr picture because you know in our own i guess kind of courtroom scene uh you know which we 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 have in this picture as well they also win over a judge and i i couldn't help but see that judge as this kind of like 
figure of the New Deal. Oh, 100%. I mean, he's, he's sitting, and, and they only show it very briefly, but but he's sitting, you know, in his, like, courtroom right in front of a, a, an NRA uh, sign. And for those who, who don't know history, that the doesn't The other mean, NRA. Yeah, the good NRA, not yeah. the National Rifle <laughs> Association, but the, the National Relief Act. Uh, and so it's clear that this guy, you know, is, is I think, meant to be that sort of, you know— democratic hope for America. Oh, 100%. And, you know, of course, the original story doesn't quite end up like that. And there's... I didn't think so. There's uh, <laughs> there's sort of a dispute. No one really knows if an alternate ending was shot. Wellman sort of claimed that there was, but, but other people have claimed otherwise. So there's sort of like a murky situation. But Wellman wanted to, you know, end it like, the, the original story, which has, uh, of course, Sally going uh, back to Chicago to become a prostitute and Eddie going to jail on a manslaughter beef bumped down from murder one. And then Tommy gets sent to like a state state reformatory, you know, oh. uh, and that's like the end of of the story. Right. But. It's 1933, Warner Brothers all in on FDR, you know, and Wellman kind of claimed that it was, you know, Jack Warner who was like, no, this is the ending, right? Like, help is on the way, yeah. right? Your dad will have a job again soon, you know? And, like, as phony as it is, it's still, like, touching to me, you know? Yeah. Like, the whole thing, even though it's, yeah, it's, like, really overwrought, you know, uh, in that sense. But... Yeah, it's uh, it, it ends with the New Deal. You know, someone on Wikipedia did something very funny where it like is summarizing the movie and it's like and uh, and the judge promises uh, that everything will magically be solved. And it's a link to the New Deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean, ultimately. Uh, he offers them work, you yeah. know, they aren't just simply like magically taken care of, you no. know, it's like mm -hmm. your, your rich uncle has suddenly come back from, from France, you know, it's like, no, it's like the judge is basically like, all right, you're looking for work. I'm going to get you some work. Like I will help you. We will find a place for you because that's the only way we're going to drag ourselves out of this situation. So at least, yeah, in that regard, it isn't just, you know, like, like Mae West suddenly marrying the richer cousin of the guy <laughs> yeah. that, that, that she was sort of dealing with, you know, but even then, I guess, you know, even in Mae West, like, that was often a thing that she would deal with, which uh, was basically, she makes it very clear in so many of her movies that she's not interested in getting married, but a lot of the pressure from the studios even was to sort of be like, well, you, you, you should settle on one guy, right? Like, the end shouldn't just be you and this, like, army of simps, you know, laying yeah. jewels at your feet, which is ultimately what she wants, and that's that's what she wants to depict. You know, suckers, right? That's what she wants to show. So there would always be this kind of, like, pressure to to tie it up and to get monogamous at the end of her film. But I would point out, even with that pressure in this film there isn't this sense that they are, you know, going to live happily ever after. I mean, it basically, he's just like, all right, I'll drop the suit. And, and they're kind of together. And of course there's an implication that they're going to be together, 
But it doesn't end with wedding bells. It doesn't no, end with No, it ends with, with an allusion to, like, sex, not marriage. Yeah. You know? Yeah, in the same way that, like, you know, Buster Keaton, Buster Keaton, you know, he hated the the fact that they always wanted him to have, like, a, a romantic lead that he would pursuing in his, his films. He's like, no, I'm, I'm in love He's with the train. Play. He wanted to play with the machine. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you know, even though the pressure would be for him at the end of his movies to, like, be married, Buster Keaton would often, like... Uh, you know, in a very kind of like haunting way, you know, as he would like embrace this woman, he would of course maintain the great stone face that like, I'm not actually happy. It's the graduate. Yeah. Or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, I definitely didn't have the feeling that they were going to live happily ever after, especially after Carrie's sort of phoned in uh, performance. Dude, they probably said cut and he was like out of that bow tie and like, you know, onto the like next lot. Yeah, in the Diedrich's dressing room or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's got to go play tennis with Randolph Scott. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to go to the athletic club. (laughs) I did think that the ending of Wild Boys of the Road was like really frustrating. It still like it still works, you know, and I think that that's ultimately like the pass I was giving it. But I kept thinking about when I was thinking about both of these endings and encountering the Wild Boys ending, how, you know, it is it's trying to set the path we're looking forward towards FDR, but then I kept thinking about how FDR has said that I'm No Angel is actually his favorite movie. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm oh, like, yeah. this is what this guy's actually thinking about right now. You know, <laughs> good That's to set right. the stage, That's right. but like, this is the real shit over here. Like, he yeah. he likes Mae West. <laughs> yeah, FDR was a Paramount man, one hundred percent. New York socialite. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. But see, I mean, and, and I would say, I, I think it's, it's, it is important to note that, again, historically speaking, that obviously, uh, you know, this, this topic, the idea of like, oh, pre-code Hollywood, you know, it, it, it's true that, that, you know, that films were much more like explicit and there was much more uh, progressive uh, content than, than certainly once the production code gets implemented. But but it would be wrong to say that there wasn't still censorship or pressure from the studios or certain ideologies governing a lot of the films we see and the choices made uh, within them. I mean, like, the production code was was actually, like, like, conceived of beginning in the 1920s, but they were, like, sort of... Like it was a process for them to get it in there, you know, so I don't think it is this clear like, you know, up until this day, things were like this. And then this day, things were like that, like already in the early 30s, like Breen and his fucking, you know, fascists were were trying to constantly up the pressure on the studios. And I think that breaking point was when in 34 they had organized that the boycott, right? And that was when things started to get real for Hollywood because it was like, shit, we are all financially in such a bad place. We can't afford boycotts. We can't afford this powerful lobby that's been building for several years to, to suddenly say, don't go see any more movies. Like we, we just, we'll, we'll take it. What do you want us to do? And they kind of acquiesced to that pressure. But, but those pressures were, I think, already there in, in, in other various ways. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the big thing that people, you know, forget about or don't know about is the state censorship boards. I mean, every state had their own laws on what could be shown in movies. So like, 
sometimes a movie's distribution would like depend on like who would show it and where it would screen because of these restrictions and there are different cuts of movies satisfying like this state's censorship board you know like and and all that stuff is like so complex I think I read Chicago had passed like one of the more restrictive ones as early as 1907 like Chicago had had like indecency laws on the books governing films for 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 quite a while and again as we mentioned like Mae West I mean she she was when she was on Broadway she she was getting dragged in front of uh courts for obscenity you know as as early as like the mid the mid 20s she spent 10 days in jail or eight I guess she got two days off for for good behavior which is of course ironic if you consider uh, everything but, but, she's but the no story angel. behind that is that like she she wooed the warden and and she would have dinner every night with the warden and his wife you know how am i doing George? living it up like yeah living <laughs> yeah. it up like the good fellas yeah. you know like straight up um i i do want to mention you know before i forget uh, I, I do feel like Wild Boys of the Road redeems the the fake FDR ending when the judge looks at uh, a, a picture of his son and it's just this fat kid. This <laughs> <laughs> is fat kid named Billy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh, and then on the street before they get in the cab to go like you know get their jobs and, and pull themselves up by their bootstraps with the help of this judge uh, Eddie. Uh, does a little like uh, you know sort of like break dancing and acrobatics on the sidewalk mm-hmm. uh, and I should mention that of course was Frankie Darrow's specialty he came from uh, a family of circus acrobats called the Flying Johnsons and <laughs> he was a child actor and a performer in the circus so it, it all you know connects in the end at the circus with Man. Mae West and yeah. uh, Frankie Darrow the Flying Johnson sounds like something straight out out of a Mae West movie, if you <laughs> yeah. think about it. I feel like of all the things I've seen in pre-code Hollywood, all the things that have shocked me and have made me reconsider my like understanding of the early 1930s, nothing has like ever shocked me as much as that sudden burst of breakdancing that Eddie gives <laughs> at the end of Wild Boys of the Road. Because there is no suggestion at any point in the movie that he can do anything like that i mean there's a few moments of athletic grace like when he jumps back in that window to get the cake but that comes out of nowhere it feels like an actual bit of magic and it's also quite sad because the idea right he's like oh shit i just like did a bunch of backflips in front of my buddy who no longer has a leg and also can't join right in our little daredevilry it's such a sad yeah it's such a sad moment (laughs) right oh man you know, I appreciate it because, again, as as Mae West will tell you, and I'm no angel, uh, it's not the men in your life that counts. It's the life in your men. And he certainly shows a lot of life throughout Wild Boys of the Road. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if you had to sort of create a rubric for these two films by just taking the production code and then write, like, measuring both of these films up against how many of those rules that they break before the code existed, of course. Like, they're both, I think, exceptional examples of, you know... These films showcase a lot of the things that the code was, like, trying to stomp down and, like, and saying, like, enough of this. You know, like, this is not stuff we can we can be showing on screen to our healthy American public. So in that sense, it was really... It was, like, an exciting double feature because I think it really scratched that itch of what types of things it reveals about America 
at that time that feels hidden in some other films from that point onward. And very pointedly, when Eddie gets arrested at the movie theater at the end, the whole crowd's watching James Cagney in Footlight Parade. Mm. Uh, Not, you know, Wild Boys of the Road, you know, not a social problem picture, a dancing picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's certainly a good thing that the Joseph Breen and his and his cronies would 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 come in to clean up that that cesspool and and among other things call for balanced and 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 even representation of Hitler and Mussolini in the in the 1930s in Hollywood, right? Let's not be unnecessarily hard on those guys, right? The the noted anti-Semite, Joseph Breen, head of the goddamn production code administration. He's not a nice man. No, fascist. I mean, a li- literal fascist, dude. <laughs> we fucked up. <laughs> so, Ryan, these were, uh, these were our uh, pre-Codies. Uh, when uh, you think about this era, uh, what comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, I watched a couple of them in prep but like i was really taken by babyface you know like that film i also think babyface really showcased something that um you know we don't need to get into it but was like disappointing about both of these films like babyface has like a really strong showcase of 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 friendship between a white woman and a black woman and both of these films are soured a bit especially i'm no angel by their racism of the time, like everything with Mae West and Beulah. But I would say that the the, the pre-code film that I, I was thinking about that I get really jazzed whenever I like think back on it is definitely the OG Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, because that is a, a truly perverse adaptation mm-hmm. of that story. And I mean, like I had seen it as a kid, right? Um, and had an idea of what it was like, but I hadn't remembered how like sexually violent and terrifying that movie is. And that movie is still like a scary movie to watch today. When I revisited it a couple of years ago, I was like, this is some dark shit. So I would definitely recommend people check that out from, from the pre-code era. Hell yeah. That's why I also love, uh, uh, the invisible man as well from, from, uh, I think is pre-code, isn't it? Yeah, because same thing. I mean, like, he kills, actually, in in The Invisible Man, the original, uh, he's got, like, the biggest body count of, like, classic Hollywood horror more than any, yeah, by like anyone else. By a he, lot. like, fucking kills a whole, like, train's worth yeah, of people. Yeah, he, he kills, know? like, hundreds of people in, in the movie. Like, not just with, like, strangling guys with his bare hands, but, yeah, commits, like, terrorist acts and kills a lot of fucking people. Is that Frederick March in the... Uh... Hyde? I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 He rips. Yeah. And Claude Rains in. in I like the Man. silent one too. I'm kind of a kind of a Jekyll Hyde guy. Like they did <laughs> it well. Like in in that era, they were like really vibing with that story. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen uh, the the Jekyll and Hyde with Anthony Perkins from the 80s? No. no. Oh man! If you want to watch a grimy, disgusting. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of course. Anthony Perkins starred in a, uh, I think it was like a, 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 maybe like an Italian co-production or something like that. It is, it is filthy and nasty and disgusting. Uh, Anthony Perkins, I forget what it's called. It's not called Jekyll and Hyde, um, 
But yeah, you could just look up Anthony Perkins and you'll probably find it. I'm and it sure. is it is so gross. It is so disgusting. Hell yeah. Very good. Uh but yeah, so that was that was my topic. Thank you for taking me back to the early 30s but um where should we take you next week marsh well after wild boys of the road i i really got a taste for it it's finally time to do the topic riding the rails bring me your train films that famous object from cinema that has enchanted people for many years I wonder what will choo choo choose. Did you actually just watch that Simpsons episode? I just rewatched it the Valentine's Day yeah. one where, yeah. where Ralph gets the the choo choo card, the Valentine from Lisa. Man, I wish I had like a timed stamped prediction. Because when I was watching Wild Boys of the Road, I said to Molly, I'm like, you know what? I bet you know, trains would be a great topic. Marsh is gonna pick trains next week. I just know it. I feel it. And here we go. This is the first time I've ever guessed next week's topic, trains. Wow. I knew it was coming because I felt it too. I was watching Wild Boys and I'm like, yeah, get me on the rails, you know? So, very good. (laughs) I'll see you on the tracks. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I got something to say. I knew all that stuff about you helping us, Mr. Baloney. I'll tell you why we can't go home. Because our folks are poor. They can't get jobs. And there isn't enough to eat. What good will it do you to send us home to starve? You say you gotta send us to jail to keep us off the streets. Well, that's a lie. You're sending us to jail because you don't want to see us. You want to forget us. Well, you can't do it. Because I'm not the only one. There's thousands just like me. There's more hitting the road every day. You're reading the papers about giving people help. The banks get it. The soldiers get it. The breweries get it. They're always yelling about giving it to the farmers. What about us? We're kids. Gee, I'm not a bad boy. Neither is Tommy. Us three kids have been traveling around the country looking for work. You don't think we like the road, do you? I had a job this morning. All I needed was an all-pack of coat. I had to have it, do you hear? I had to have it. We were broken. I went out to beg for a few nickels. When a guy gave me a chance to make five dollars, sure I took it. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't anybody. Gosh, how did I know what a mess it was going to get us into? Oh, I only did it for the coat. I only did it for the job. I only did it because I wanted to work. It meant everything, guys. But what's the use?